Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, uh, John McManus and James Holland. And now, uh, today we're going to talk about a subject that is dear to Jim's heart. Is that not right, James? Well, no, it's. it's I think I've slightly overcooked how much I like Mark Clark. I, 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 I don't... <laughs> And it's not that I really, really like him. I just feel a bit indignant on his behalf that he gets such a bad press because I don't really understand it. And I've been studying the Italian campaign on and off for the best, you know, more than 15 years. And I haven't really changed my opinion. And all the work I've done recently, I would say, has only improved my opinion of him. And, and the bottom line is, is there's absolutely no question that he has a massive chip on his shoulder. And the chip is basically this that in the interwar years, he didn't really do an awful lot in terms of, of soldiering. You know, he was desk bound much of the time. I mean, he had a proven track record in the First World War, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't going around fighting in the Northwest frontier. He wasn't at Dunkirk. You know, he wasn't in North Africa in the early days. And the fact of the matter is, when he took over Fifth Army and landed with it in September 1943 on the beaches south of Salerno, he had never, ever done anything close to that before. And he was surrounded by people who were a heck of a lot more experienced than him. And he was chippy about it. He just was, you know, he was paranoid that someone would get, he, I think he felt in his heart of hearts, he was up to it and that he would rise to the challenge. But I think he felt very keenly that lack of experience. And he, and he I think he felt that behind people's backs, people are going, oh, who's this American? He just thinks he can rock in and command armies, you know. And that is the root of his of his insecurity. And that then manifested itself sometimes in arrogance and being a little bit kind of, over defensive when he didn't need to be and so on but being a bit arrogant and being a little bit chippy sometimes and being ambitious and, and sometimes being a bit snappy those are not necessarily ills of generalship well so here's the, the sort of orthodox traditional view of mark clark is a guy who's vain vainglorious um who um certainly has some level of Courage. I mean, there's. I don't think that's ever been disputed by anybody, even his great detractors. Uh, courage in World War One, fighting in the Vosges. Courage going into North Africa on the clandestine operation before Torch. Courage at Salerno. But but yeah. the the sort of larger kind of preoccupation with uh, with gaining the glory of Rome at the expense of surrounding Tenth Army. Uh, you know, after the in Operation Diadem, uh, that he that he then gets consigned to this sort of secondary theater and is sort of you know, chafing at that for the rest of his life, the rapido disaster, all that. So those are the sort of, you know, traditional kind of orthodox views of Clark. What's intriguing to me, Jim, is, is you're, you're really pushing back against that. And, and not just by a cursory look at him, but by immersion in, in this research for a decade and a half when you kind of walked alongside this guy and gotten to know him. So, I mean, I'm personally kind of intrigued by this. Um, cause I, I don't know as much about him as you do in, in the sense of really studying him that closely. Come on, Jim. Come on. He missed a chance to destroy 10th army. 
He went for Rome out of personal vanity. Come on, James. Come over to the dark side. Join us. Come on. I mean, is that fair, do you think? Is, I mean, that's been the standard view. Is it? Is it fair? No, I, I just don't think it is. I don't think it is. I, I, I think. I, I think it starts to slide. I think. I think the, one of the problems with the, with the Italian campaign, a lot of it has been written by by Brits, Brits who were junior subalterns, you know, lieutenants, first lieutenants, second lieutenants, back in 1943-44, and who got a very very jaundiced view of the Italian campaign. And it's much easier to blame an American than it is a British commander, and it's much easier to blame Clark than it is Alex, because Alex is British and looks suave and sophisticated <laughs> and is an incredibly experienced um, uh, commander and all the rest of it. And as you know, I absolutely love Alex, so, you know, um, I, I kind of get that. I think that's where a lot of it comes. I, I mean, I mentioned to you the other day this this interesting, uh, you know, note in, in Naples 44 by Norman Lewis, which is a, a remarkable book. But, you know, he's a chippy wanker too. I mean, you know, he really is. And, and um, um, you know, he hates all senior he hates all central authority he hates senior authority and when he goes through Battipaglia after the Salerno battle um, which is largely destroyed by you know um, naval guns and and and, and bombers um, and British artillery he singles out Mark Clark to blame for the destruction of Battipaglia you know it is his fault and subsequent people are reading this and you know if you're going to write a book about the italian campaign you read this sort of boots up boots on the ground kind of stuff and 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 that kind of prejudice starts to kind of sort of infiltrate and particularly once it's added to other things such as the kind of the whole fall of rome um scenario which was at the time the greatest allied um triumph that they'd had against um against Germany at that point in the war on the ground certainly you know it was it was a monstrous victory a huge defeat of, of Germany. And the thing is about that, the, the, a lot of that, and you'll see this cited in every single book about it, is that Alexander, when he learned what Mark, had, Mark Clark had done, not going all out to Valmontoni from the breakout from Anzio, um, uh, and had actually turned up into the Auburn Hills and, and, you know, because he was so desperate to get into Rome himself, um, Alexander was absolutely furious. Well, there is not one scrap of contemporary evidence to support that. And the only source of Alexander having a fit is from an interview by Raleigh Trevelyan, who was at Anzio and had a very bitter and horrible time, with Harold Macmillan in about 1967, by which point, you know, a whole narrow, different narrative about Italy had already emerged, where he, where he said in an interview to, to Raleigh Trevelyan that Alex was very cross about this. Interestingly, that quotation in Raleigh Trevelyan's book is not sourced. So I wrote to him and said, look, you say this about Macmillan, and it's interesting because, you know, Alexander was famous for never losing his temper. The only time he was, anyone ever witnessed him um, lose his temper was in 1917 in the Battle of Passchendaele when one of his soldiers refused to give a, ger a wounded German prisoner um, some water. And apparently he lost his rag then. That's the only time anyone ever saw him lose his temper. So I said, it's incredibly out of character. And I'm just a bit surprised that you, you, you cited this without any, any quotation. He said, oh, gosh, well, that's very remiss of me. I don't know why I didn't. But yes, it was a conversation with Harold Macmillan. You know. But everyone else has sort of jumped on that bandwagon. Now, the thing about this incident of Rome and not going all out for Valmontoni, so basically what happens is you've got, you've got Operation Shingle, which is the, obviously the invasion of um, the, the, this amphibious operation south of Rome around Anzio and Natuno, which are these two little twin ports on the uh, on the coast just about sort of 30 miles south of Rome. They were landed in January. It didn't do what it was supposed to do in January 1944, but it was a great launch pad um, for Operation Diadem, which is the, the battle plan for the fall of, you know, for the for the capture of Rome in May and then subsequently in June 1944. 
And the idea was that the, the US 6 Corps, which included some British divisions in it, would, at a certain moment, strike out from this bridgehead and cut straight towards Highway 6, the Via Casalina, down which the German 10th Army was going to be retreating and stop them there. Because behind Valmontoni, which is this tiny little town on the road and the railway, is a ridge of mountains. So there's nowhere else for them to go because the ridge runs roughly parallel, the ridge of mountains run roughly parallel to the road. So you've got this valley and then you've got the, the, the um, Orsoni Mountains and Lapini Mountains on your left-hand flank as you're looking northwards. So that was the battle plan. Now, as it, you know, the, as was devised for Diadem before it was launched on the 11th of May, 1944. Now, what actually happened was that 8th Army was much slower going using that access of the railway line and, via, and the Via Casalina Highway 6 than were the French Expeditionary Corps and US 2 Corps on their flank going through the mountains. So 8th Army was in the Leary Valley. The French and, and US 2 Corps were, on the, um, were in the mountains. And the idea was that 8th Army would go forward. The French and 2 Corps would be behind them on their, on their left-hand flank as they're heading northwards towards Rome. At a certain point, 6th Corps would break out of Anzio, cut across to Valmontoni, block the 10th Army from retreating down Highway 6, and you'd have the whole lot in this massive pocket. That was the idea. But what actually happened was that the French and the, and, and two corps got ahead of 8th Army. So what that enabled 10th Army to do was to retreat not down Highway 6, the Via Casalina, but retreat to the northeast through these different valleys running up parallel to, to, to Highway 6, but the other side of mountains. So not a single German soldier from 10th Army actually went past Valmontoni. So... As Clark realised, there was no point in going all out for Valmontoni because overlooking that flank march from the bridgehead to Valmontoni were the Auburn Hills. And on the Auburn Hills was the Caesar line behind which was the German 14th Army. So rather than risk the flanks of 6th Corps, he decided to turn straight up into the Auburn Hills and take them on head on, which was a pretty punchy move and could have really, really back, back, backfired. But it didn't. There was a gap in the line. Uh, von Mackensen, who was the commander of the, of the 14th Army, was, was pretty rubbish. Um, um, the, the 14th Army weren't up to much. And 5th Army, which was now as one with 6th with six Corps, 2 Corps and the French, was able to charge on ahead and destroy much of 14th Army. So as a result of the fighting that had already taken place in the Lyric Valley and around Casino, 10th Army was badly mauled but not destroyed, but the 14th Army was effectively destroyed. So that was a, that was a better scenario outcome than had been planned. The whole thing, the, the, the one critic of this was Lucien Trusco, who was the 6th Army commander at this point. And he was really cross about risking his forces going up into the Auburn Hills because it's a tough proposition, attacking a defensive line when you're downhill and they're uphill. And he was saying, why, aren't we, why don't we just use the gap in the hills made by, you know, through which the Via Casalina goes and use that as our point of access rather than turning up and facing him on a broad front um, along the Auburn Hills. That was his beef. It's not that he wasn't going to all out to Valmontoni to cut off 10th Army. So in all of this, this huge sort of... It's, it's the Valmontoni thing and, and the uh, letting 10th Army escape is the big accusation, but that simply doesn't add up. And if you look at all the contemporary sources of the time, whether it be Oliver Lees, who absolutely hated Clark, or John Harding's diary, or Macmillan, or literally anyone else, all they do is go, 
have to say, Clark's done a great job. Fifth Army's done a brilliant job. Cracking effort getting into Rome there. That was an amazing, amazing well, thing. Well, the other thing, a couple of things strike me about it. Um, I mean, I know from my study of the 7th Infantry Regiment, which is part of the 3rd ID, which of course is at the spear point of Diadem, and that's one of the bloodiest battles they fight in the entire war, just to break out, especially at Cisterna. But they do get to Valmontoni. I mean, they, they do. And, 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 and they, you know, and so they're right there at the pivot point. The other thing that really is intriguing about it, if we look at it in a sort of a broader... Combat Command B gets there, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, but but also some of the, the leading edges of the 7th Infantry Regiment, too, that have gone beyond Cisterna. Uh, and are you know, and are also like, okay, which way are we going? And and it seems obvious because you're on the road going north, you're going north, you know, <laughs> towards Rome. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, and they do, and they do exactly. But the other thing too, from a sort of broader military history scope, one of the toughest things, if not the toughest thing to do in any kind of tactical environment, is to annihilate your enemy entirely. Um, you know, the, the Western commanders have been chasing this since since the time of Hannibal and Caney. Um, you know, I mean, so, uh, I mean, Meade doesn't do it at Gettysburg. Uh, Lee doesn't do it at Gettysburg. Both had sort of tried. Um, that's sort of one more recent example. But, you know, the, the Falaise Gap is another example, too, later that summer. Um, this isn't a very easy thing to do. When you're talking about the kind of terrain you've got in Italy, I think that's the other challenging factor that it's sometimes been been overlooked. So, yeah, it is intriguing to hear your, I mean, it's a very cogent defense here. Because I, even if Clark really does go hell-bent for leather towards the sort of East Coast, is he really going to be able to pull this sort of annihilation mission off i i don't know well he gets very lucky he gets lucky because there's this gap in the line which is entirely you know mackinson and his, his and his corps commanders taking their eye off the ball and and it all happens very quick and, and of course you know the great the great irony of the whole thing is it's the texans who find this gap um <laughs> and the texans who've had this absolutely brutal campaign from the beaches of salerno to you know the bernhard line the winter line you know sam San Pietro, oh, all the rest of it, all awful. the way through to the Rapido, et cetera, et cetera. They have a terrible, yeah. terrible time. And it's really interesting for me because I've been trying to find eyewitness testimonies from from people who were at Salerno, but also at the Rapido. They don't exist, really. Yeah. And, and that's because they're, they're two completely different. They're two completely different sets of infantrymen because the first lot aren't there at the Rapido, really. And if they are at the Rapido, they're dead by the end of it. So there's just no one left. And, and, and that just tells you just how, how attritional it's been in the rifle companies. If you want eyewitnesses from the from the 36th Texans who've been in, um, you know, at Salerno and are still there in Rome, you know, you're talking about the engineers, you're talking about artillery, you're talking about the INR guys. You're not talking about the rifle people. They, they literally just don't exist. It's absolutely incredible. So they exploit this gap. And what they're able to do is then burst through and they fold up both, they split the 14th Army into two. I mean, the 14th Army is under strength compared to kind of 10th Army, but they split it into two and then basically enfold it. And so the only people that get away are the stragglers that kind of, you know, push north. Uh, and it's very, very few troops. I mean, you know, to all intents and purposes, at the end of that, uh, by the time um, 5th Army is in Rome, 14th Army has ceased to exist as a as a coherent force. I mean, you know, obviously people get away, but 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 it's it's it wouldn't be able to fight a, the the following Tuesday. Put it that way. So it it it's a, it's an it's an amazing achievement, and I just find it absolutely extraordinary that that here he is being criticised for something. Now his big thing is is that this rumour went round that Mark Clark said if he saw any British troops in in Rome he'd shoot them. That's just it's just 
absolute horseshit. I mean, you know, he never said... There's no evidence he never said it, he never would say it, and not least because there's lots of Brits in his army. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Doesn't this all speak to... uh, I mean, obviously... There's lots going on here um, in that um, with this, his reputation, Clark's reputation that you're having to knock down, Jim, is that it's been so sticky. It's very, very sticky. I mean, this is the received view of Mark Clark. When we when we tweet about this episode, say it's about Mark Clark, there will be a bunch of people in our replies without fail <laughs> saying he was a bastard that wanted to shoot British soldiers if he saw any in Rome. Uh, you know, he stitched up Eighth Army and had an opportunity to defeat, defeat the Germans and he and he just didn't take it, and and I don't know. I I think the fact that this is so sticky is in itself interesting. I mean, you you got a lot to do here, Jim. But but also what you've described um, just there is the mark of great generalship. You know, you you have a plan. The plan uh, doesn't survive contact with the enemy. Doesn't work out the way you expected it to. You you adapt to circumstances. The plan then evolves, and and by being able to do that, you bring about a victory. I mean. That's that's all you can ask of your generals, isn't it? Over the years, I mean, you know, this, James. Uh, over the years, I've gone, I've gone into bat for Montgomery an awful lot, and and after all, he is a much more adaptive, adaptive general than he ever wants to admit. Uh, he, he's, you know, he's very fond of saying everything went according to plan. I knew exactly what I was doing, and it turned out I was white. But but he, and you know, in his memoirs, he does that, and. It's, kind of does himself a disservice because he's actually, he very often had to start from scratch and wasn't bad at it either. I mean, you look at Supercharger El Alamein, his army is taking, has taken a bashing trying to pull off his offensive. So what does he do? He has a rethink and he brings about a victory. I mean, that's that's what Mark Clark's doing. That's what he does. So, I mean, who cares if he's an arrogant prick? Well, <laughs> this is slightly my point. I mean, I mean, there's very, you know, there are, of course, some absolutely lovely generals who aren't particularly arrogant and are incredibly nice, you know, whether it's, whether it's um, Bill Simpson, whether it's Alex, uh, um, you know, there are a few who are just really top blokes. Yes, Eichelberger, exactly. There's a few, but, but you can literally count them on one hand. Um, and you certainly can't find them in Germany. And, and there's not many American generals like that. But, you know, it's, it's not even a point worth arguing about because it doesn't really matter. It, you don't really care. What you want is someone who's a winner, who's going who's, who's gonna to be decisive, who's going to understand the strategic, the strategic aims, the operational uh, complexities and restrictions, exploit the operational opportunities to the most, but be tactically acute too. Be, be balanced, be aware of the constraints. Mark Clark is, is handed a singular honour in being commander of the first army to be um, created overseas outside of the United States. You know, that's 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 a big deal. And he knows it. You know, it's obviously it's a great honour to be commanding Fifth Army as it goes into uh, goes into Italy. But it's also, you know, fl- flip that round. It's also a massive poison chalice because Avalanche is an incredibly high risk um, operation, as we've discussed. And Italy is generally a very, very, very tough campaign indeed, whichever way you look at it, because the expectations are so high. The aces are all with the defender. The weather's absolutely atrocious. You're doing it at a time where, you know, it's a it's a bad time of the year. 
Um, by the time you've got decent weather and the things are slightly in your favour, your, your forces are being constantly stripped back and back and back and back because you're not the priority. The Allies have got too much to do, so can't give it the focus and the and the and the um, attention it deserves, having committed to it. And and despite all that, he comes out as a winner. And the final campaign, which is the final battles of spring 1945, is entirely his conception. OK, he's got planners, you know, he's got staff and team with him and he's got Al Grunter, who's very, very good as his chief of staff, etc., etc. But he is the allied um, army group commander. The final campaign in Italy is his plan and he totally annihilates the Germans. And... and, and Italy is the first place in Europe where they get total unconditional surrender of German forces. And that is a big achievement, you know, particularly from where he's come. When Alexander gets bumped up to be Supreme Allied Commander in the Mediterranean theatre, he is asked, who do you think should be Army Group Commander? Now, Italy is, despite the huge American commitment, is a predominantly British and Duke affair. You yeah. know, it's a multinational force, but no one's under any any doubt whatsoever that certainly when it comes to the ground operations, less so the air operations, but from the ground operations point of view, this is predominantly a British show. And so there is no political reason whatsoever for Alexander to recommend an American to be the army group commander. There's none whatsoever. That moment has passed. The idea that... that, that, that and, he, and he, without a question of doubt, chooses Mark Clark. And that's because he's really good. If he's so angry at him after the whole Rome thing. Right. Yeah. So it sort of mitigates against that because <clears throat> I've always wondered the same thing. Why would Alex choose him? Right. I mean, and, and there's, there's all the Sidney Matthews um, interviews, which you can which you'll you'll know of, um, John, which are in, um, in in the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. And Sidney Matthews went around sort of in the, in the kind of 50s, um, late 50s and 60s, interviewing all these senior commanders. And there's a lot with Alexander. Um, and he doesn't. He really bats over, over the Val Montoni thing in a in a very big way. Says so, so, says you know Wayne did a really. He was always known as Wayne. He said said Wayne did a, a great job at Rome. Um, um, he said you know I was a bit miffed at some point. You know I was a bit I was a bit surprised that that at one point. But but I went to see him and he explained it and I was very happy with that. You know so it's like where is this come from? And he also he he talks about about command and he says it's incredibly important. When you have command, that your subordinates are all people that you trust, and that people that you you that you know will get the job done, that you have total faith in their ability to do what they need to do. And I thought, gosh, isn't that interesting? Because on the back of that, he's just recommended that Mark Clark be the Army Group Commander and not McCreary and not, you know, anyone else. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> so you know, I kind of. <sighs> And if that's coming from Alex, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just, you know, the, 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 the criticism doesn't really add up. Alex is the person who could backbench him if he's really that angry, um, you know, and unless there's major politics involved and he doesn't quite do that. Um, what, you know, one issue that I've had with Clark is um, that it seems as though he kind of made his core commanders, the fall guys, um, at both Salerno and, and Anzio. Salerno, I understand. Uh, I, th I think he's dealing with a core commander there who's out of his depth. Uh, Lucas, I think, is another guy who gets a little bit of a bad rap um, as this sort of timid little little wilting flower. Uh, Lucas had gotten the Distinguished Service Cross. He was a very distinguished soldier. Um, maybe he's not the aggressive guy you want at Anzio. And it's a big upgrade to Truscott, obviously. But I also, I also kind of wonder, I've always wondered, if Clark could have had more of a hand 
in making six core more aggressive once it gets ashore to Anzioka. What's the point of this whole thing? Uh, we can't get to Rome. That's way too aggressive at that point. We're going to get nailed. Uh, but what I've always wondered about, and what, what do you think about this, Jim? Why not get the high ground, as much high ground as you can possibly get once you get ashore? And you'll be able to dictate a lot of what happens with these German counterattacks. Totally. Well, I, but I think that's a mistake. You know, I was just reading a German account just literally just two days ago, and, and he was saying, God, you know, we were, we were sent down there. He was in the, I think, the 4th Faustenjäger Regiment, and he, he, um, he was sent down there, and, and he said there was just nothing there. There was absolutely nothing in those hills at all. Um, so yeah, they could have done, but you know, it's it's you know, it's really interesting. For example, this is going to seem like a like an odd tangent, but but a tour of duty for a frontline fighter fighter pilot in the RAF used to be six months, and then they went to Malta, and it became three months because of the intensity. And I think you know, uh, Lucas takes over in September uh, from Dorley and 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 does a very good job up to Christmas. You know, his diaries do reveal, you know, all those kind of doubts and worries and anxieties and all the rest of it about pushing people too hard, you know, and they, these guys are seeing what's happening to these blokes in in the hills, you know, on Mon, uh, on Monte Samucro, on, on, you know, on Monte La Defensa and, and, and all the rest of them. I don't know if this is a criticism or not a criticism, but I think Mark Clark was prepared to take more hits amongst his men than a lot of his subordinates. I think he was pretty tough. Um, and there was a note that I was trying to find earlier on, Al, but I remember sending you from Clark to all his commanders yeah. going, listen, this is a this is a war. This is tough. No one said it was going to oh. be easy. Of course, you're going yeah. to take hits. You know, yeah. don't be, you know, you cannot pussyfoot around. You know, if you're going to get stuff done, people are going to get killed. And that's just a fact of war. But ultimately, you're going to have less people killed because the sooner you get it done, the fewer people that are coming through are going to get killed. And that's the way to look at it. Or worse, I'm paraphrasing, but it, but it's sort of yeah, worse yeah. to that effect. One of the things that Alexander points out in the Sidney Matthews interviews, he says, I always got the impression that, that, that Wayne was just, you know, that, and the Americans generally were more willing to take casualties than we were. You know, we've been in it a lot longer. We're running out of manpower. All our commanders were really, really minded that we had to try and reduce the number of um, casualties as much as we possibly can. And there is a moment in the first um, operation to take Monte Camino, which is this huge sort of bullock, sort of bastion. There's Monte Samucro, one side of the Mignano Gap. So you've got the Bernhard line, the winter line. Then then kind of 10 miles behind, you've got the Gustav line, which is the one that runs through Casino. So this is like a, like a forward position, but it's like a it's like a double lock. It's, it's like a sort of, you know, if you think of a kind of huge, great kind of a metal fire door, and then there's another one behind... That's what it's like. And one side of the Mignano Gap, you've got Monte Samucro on the kind of northern side. And on the southern side, you've got Monte Camino, which also includes part of the, the Camino Massive is Monte La Defensa and, and Monte Maggiore. 56th Division, um, are, are, which is British, are given the job of taking Camino in the first half of, of, of November. And that's part of 10th Corps, which is British. It's part of, part of um, um, Mark Clark's 5th Army, US 5th Army even though it's British. And Tim McCreary, who's the commander, has a meeting with Clark on, I think, the 11th of November. 56th Division, and particularly the 201st Guards Brigade, you know, so three battalions of Guards Infantry, have all been trying to kind of, you know, hammer their way against this, this mountain. McCreary just says, I'm really sorry, you know, they can't go on anymore. You know, they've taken too many, they've lost too many subalterns, they've lost, too, you know, junior officers, platoon commanders and NCOs, and, and they just can't do it anymore. Only about 10 days later... Clark does a review of the 6th Grenadier Guards at Caserta, 
which is a few, you know, 25 miles to the south of, of there. And at that time, the Sith Grenadier Guards are down to about 371 men. This is 10 days after they've come out of the line. They should be 845. You know, and this is what you're dealing with in Italy, because in Normandy, your norm you know, your battalion gets hit to that length. You're out of the line and you're not back in the line for a month until you've replenished and you're back to 845. Yeah. You know, and, and you're, you're constantly being upgraded. In Italy, that's not the case. So your frontline battalions, they get, get in, they get absolutely hammered and chewed up in a six-day battle, get, get pulled out of the line. And at that stage, you know, they're just not being replenished to the level that they should be. And, and that's the fate of the soldiers in Italy. But that isn't Mark Clark's fault. It's not Dick McCreary's fault either. It's, and it's certainly not Alexander's fault. That's the fault. It's the nature of the campaign that it's been committed to without the resources required to do what they need to do. And the because, because it's a defender's paradise. Because it's a defender's paradise and because they haven't learned the lessons of the previous winter, which is that, that you go into Tunisia, you're going to be there by Christmas, um, uh, and they haven't counted on the Germans defending it very doggedly, and they haven't counted on the, the effects of winter weather in the Mediterranean. And exactly the same thing happens the following year, where, but it's times 100, because they've gone into Italy assuming that the Germans aren't going to hold the line south of Rome, and they've assumed that it's going to be sunny and they're going to be in Rome by, by Christmas. And so when that doesn't happen, it's kind of a, a big black mark on everyone involved from... The line regiments, you know, the line battalions, the rifle battalions, through to the divisional commanders, to, to the corps commanders, through to the army commanders. You know, everyone gets a black mark because it hasn't happened as everyone hopes. And I'll tell you, on the other side of that Mignano Gap and the Monte Lee Defensa, the third ID is dying up there too on those hills at, a, at the same time. Uh, it, the, the, the casualty rates are beyond belief. Um, it's still incredible to me that the third division was even you know, in a position to launch the Anzio invasion after the kind of attrition they take, you know, in the fall of 1943 up in those mountains during that part of the campaign, which is just almost almost World War One-ish. Well, if you consider that the that Fifth Army lands in, in Salerno with four, well, with three divisions and one in reserve that comes in the next couple of days, the 45th Thunderbirds, by the end of December 1943... Fifth Army alone has lost 30,000 casualties, which is two entire divisions. It's horrible. And, you know, the U.S. can replace those losses more readily than Britain, but the losses are the losses. But, but, and... but you, <laughs> yes, but you're also still dependent on shipping, you know, and that's the problem. And, and, you know, you've given yourself a big task because one of the big reasons for going into Italy is so that you get the Fodger airfields, so that you can then put, create the 15th Air Force as a strategic air force. And that's taking up a lot of your, your time. I mean, you know, a, a, a pipeline is created from Foggia to Manfredonia on the coast by the beginning of November 1943. At the same time that these poor bastards are trying to kind of battle their way across rivers and, and mountains and stuff. And so, you know, Churchill says, surely the, the ground campaign needs to take priority over the air campaign, which is a kind of nice extra. And, everyone, and the chiefs of staff go, no way. This is all about the strategic air campaign. That's that's really bad luck on the guys on the ground, which it which it surely is. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. So, so do you think that the source of this animus that, uh, towards Clark is 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 this campaign, the campaign itself? People's experiences are so bad, the um uh, the vibe is so awful that it has to go somewhere. 
how people feel about it, how they feel about the campaign itself, what it's like to fight there, and the the you know uh, questions of why they're there. It has to go to him. It has to go to him. This is a fu- and this is a function of war. Someone has got to carry the blame for everything. It becomes it becomes Mark Clark, and and he's not responsible for what the chiefs of staff have decided. You know, he, he didn't make the decision. He's not responsible for the fact the campaign is has has been designed around uh, de- delivering strategic. Um, you know, the strategic bombing campaign. He's not responsible for troops being removed from combat in preparation for Overlord. In fact, he's he's lobbied hard to make these things not happen, hasn't he? So, Well, he lobbies very, very hard to keep 1st Armoured Division, which he gets, and he gets it. You know, so he's, he, he, you know, he's fighting his corner. And the other thing is, Al, is, is that what you see from his, you know, his diaries are, it's it's not his words, okay? So so what he's got, he's, he's got an aide who's got a typewriter and he dictates stuff to them at the end of every day and during the course of the day in a quiet moment. And he says, I want you to note this down. And this is absolutely him... Clark is, you know, because of he's got this little bit of a chip and all the rest of it, you know, he wants to make sure that he's got stuff down fresh on the day that he's done it because it's an insurance blanket as much as anything. He can say, I know, on this day I did this. And what's really interesting is you can see all his movements because, you know, General Clark, Clark, you know, the general um, went out of this and at 3.30 he he and his driver took a, you know, went to his and they got in a pipe of club and they did this. He is at the front line the whole time. I mean, literally careering around, going from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. You know, the absolute height of the um, the, the, the battle to break through the Bernhard line, he suddenly gets a call at 10 o'clock at night going, right, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, you need to be in Palermo. And and he goes, am I allowed to stay here? And he goes, nope, just you've got to be there. And he goes, okay. Uh, and he's got to get there because the president's there and and Marshall and and Harry Hopkins and everything. They're coming back from Cairo and they're they're calling in and they want to see him. So he's got to drop everything, get over there. By the afternoon, he's back and he's kind of touring the front again. It's 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 just incredible. And you know, once you decide that you've got it in for him, you can you can think of all sorts of things. There's this guy called Eric Severite, who's a, who's a, a a pretty well known known guy, and he absolutely hates Mark Clark for what I don't know why quite, but something Clark must you know might have slighted him once. You know, a lot of journalists have got quite big egos, and he's one of them, and, and he just takes a you know absolutely takes offence and he goes do you know he's so vain do you know what he did Mark Clark I watched him do it he got out of his jeep took off his helmet put on his field cap and then only allowed someone to take a photograph from his right side I mean what an arsehole (laughs) it's perfectly reasonable to me and, and you know the bottom line is is Clark knows that they live in a in a media age, and particularly in a media age in the United States. He also knows that Italy, this campaign which his army has been fighting for, which has been sweating blood, losing blood over, he feels it's worth fighting, particularly after the um, the, the, the great victory against Rome. He wants that to be at the forefront of public opinion. So it's incredibly important that 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 he is the figurehead around which you know press can coagulate um that the fifth army gets mentioned as much as possible yeah great about eighth army of course mention eighth army but but you know it's really important that fifth army gets its column inches in the in the american newspapers and on nbc and all the rest of it and that's part of his job as a, an army commander and you can say oh he's so vain well yeah obviously that comes into it and he wants a bit of glory for himself of course he should and frankly he's earned it there's nothing wrong with that and and it's very interesting because when Giles Lampson who is Samar's Lampson's son who's the um, British ambassador in, in Egypt he gets seconded to Clark as a as an as his British liaison officer British aide aide de camp and 
one of the things that Lampson writes in his letters, he says, you know, it's very weird. You know, the Americans here are quite different from the British. You know, they all keep scrapbooks. All the commanders, whether it be a, like a like a, a regimental commander or a divisional commander or a corps commander or an army commander, they all keep scrapbooks of all their stuff. And he says, says, you know, we all find this really bizarre. But, you know, if that helps win the war, then who am I to complain about it? You know, <laughs> it's just a... It's just a different thing. A couple of components of this, I think, um, that, that leads to this sort of hate for Mark Clark. Uh, for one, he's the face yeah. of this gargoyle that is the Italian campaign. I mean, that's sort of what Al was getting at, too. I mean, he is he's associated with it. He's the face of it. The second thing, from an American perspective, he seems very undemocratic in a way because he, he seems... He just gives off this sort of whiff of of um, sort of military self centeredness that uh, that he wants his own glory that he wants to be photographed. So that's why the Severide anecdote really sort of fires up a lot of Americans. It's like here's you got guys dying in the hills, and this general's worried about how he's being photographed on his right side and all this. And and it's the kind of thing where if the general had already mm. established a kind of a humble man reputation like yeah. Omar Bradley. Uh, which I think is sort of overblown in my opinion. But if he has, then then you'll let it score, you'll let it slide. Or but Clark hadn't, and so he's got the, he doesn't have those bona fides. And he there's something about him that rubs the average American the wrong way in that sense that that uh, that he's not like a soldier of democracy. And it, a little example I give you: um, uh, John Eisenhower, who of course is Dwight's son, and and knew Mark Clark, uh, knew him when because. Uh, John would spend time with uh, Clark and his family um, when he was, uh, I think, at prep school in in DC or something like that, and so he'd known him for a long time. and And he in a in a book he in a book that Eisenhower published with us at University of Missouri Press, in which he was like just talking about all these different military personalities whom he knew, including Clark. Um, he he told this anecdote about how um, in in North Africa. Uh, in the wake of Friedendahl crashing and burning with the whole Kasserine Pass thing, that uh, that John's father, Dwight, wanted Clark to take over Second Corps at that point. Uh, that was his first choice, not Patton. Um, that, uh, but Clark, of course, had already received command of Fifth Army, like you said, Jim. It was the first ar- first you know army level headquarters stood up overseas and all this. Uh, and so when Clark Clark's like, no, I don't really want to step down from Army Command to Corps Command, even though there is a crisis. And even though he and Eisenhower had been friends for since West Point, um, that Eisenhower always looked at him a little bit differently as a kind of a self-centered person versus Patton, who took over Second Corps. That this is this was John Eisenhower's point of view. Yeah, and 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 we know that happened, and and you know Eisenhower absolutely did ask him to do it, and and he didn't. But what you don't know is he said, well, obviously I'll do this for you, Ike, but but isn't there someone else can do it? Why don't you ask Ike? Why why don't you ask George first? I mean, we don't know that that it didn't come about in that way. We don't know. I mean, it's really interesting. So there's, there's a line here. So there's a guy who is the head of the INR. Um, platoon in in the 141st Regiment, uh, which is part of the 36th Texans. And he says, in my gut, I knew that an attack against San Pietro was practically suicidal. And it made me feel no better when I overheard Wyatt, who is the acting regimental commander, say after my arrival at the forward CP that he'd heard General Clark say that he wanted to give San Pietro to his wife as a birthday present. What a crock of egotistical hooey that was. Well, the interesting thing is, is that the wife's, uh, the Clark's wife's birthday, Rini, uh, was at the beginning of October. And that's in December. So, so that just can't that that. So that yeah. that's just absolute. <laughs> so, so much for that. It's just rubbish. 
You know what? It's it's so similar. This is a tangent, but it's the same kind of thing. Um, it, in January 1945, during the dash from Manila, um, there were all these all these people who had the impression that MacArthur was pushing forward. You know, like like oh my god, we got to get to yeah. Manila so they can have it by the time of my birthday, like whatever it was, January 26th, I think. Um, and and so when I so I'd always heard that, and then I looked in to find see if there was any real evidence. None. I mean, just none, just like the impression people had. And it's exactly the same thing with Clark. If someone has that sort of reputation for vaingloriousness, anything can be attributed to them. So we don't want to do this crap job of going and getting San Pietro. Uh, Well, it must be General Clark with his nefarious, uh, you know, (laughs) agenda to to give it to his wife as a birthday present. No, there isn't anything. No, it's nonsense. But but there's a there's a great line from after after Salerno because the other thing is is you know he was so, you know he was so scared of what was going on that he actually even thought about evacuating <laughs> Salerno. I mean, how how rubbish is that? I mean, presumably that's just actually quite sensible to have a sort of plan B. No, you have to come up with a provision plan. I mean, you do, and you're going in there with nowhere near enough. And yeah, so he's got a tough mission there. So he writes to Eisenhower when the yeah. crisis has passed at Salerno. And I think I sent this to, to you, to you, Al. He says, this is Clark. He says, this has been a great opportunity and privilege, and I appreciate your letting me bring my fifth army into action. We have made mistakes, and we have learned the hard way, but we will improve every day, and I'm sure we will not disappoint you. <laughs> I mean, that's quite humble, isn't it? It sounds like it. Sure seems like it. I mean, that to me sounds exactly the same. You know, there's no crowing there, is there? There's no one saying, woohoo, I'm the man, I'm the daddy. I mean, he's, he's saying, you know, he's acknowledging this. it is a great privilege to command yeah. an army, but also this has been a close-run thing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how I'm reading that. Yeah. Put those words in Omar Bradley's mouth. They're they're perceived like exactly the way you say. Put those words in Mark Clark's mouth. It's like, oh, what's his agenda? But what we haven't t- what we should quickly touch on before we, we call off is 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 the Rapido, of course, for which he is, you know, also hugely, hugely vilified. Uh, and my big my big point about this is is again, you need to go back to the kind of people who were there. Um and and, and Fred Walker, who was the uh, divisional commander put in a very, very quick and robust defense of his own actions on this. I never liked it. I never thought it was a good idea. I mean, you know, tell me a divisional commander in Italy who didn't like the idea of crossing a really fast-flowing river with Germans on the other side. Everybody raises their hands. <laughs> of course you don't. Everybody. <laughs> Everyone sort of goes, this is a nightmare. Of course it's a nightmare. But, but you know, the whole Italian campaign is strewn with... With, with operations of people trying to get across rivers that they don't want to get across, um, across, you know, bridges that have been blown, across rivers that are in yeah. spate and kind of, you know, hurtling past. There's this guy called Hamilton Howes who ends up commanding Combat Command B and the breakout and, and, and went on to become a, a Vietnam general. And um, he was commanding a, I, I, it's a 751st tank battalion, something like that. Um and he is called, although they're from the 1st Armoured Division, they're called up to supplement the firepower of the 36 Texans before the Rapido crossing. And so he moves all his tanks up and he goes to all the guys, he goes up to Fred Walker and goes, I'm here, where do you want me? And he just goes, oh, can you just sort of wait over there, please? They're never called. They're never called to fire, they're never called to sports, they're never called to do anything. And he says... We were just sat there. We were waiting to go, and this, this debacle was unfolding. That's not Mark Clark's fault. That's the regimental commanders and, and Fred Walker's fault. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like 
This yeah. is an army commander, and that's a division level fight. So it's a division problem. You know, if, if you've got a problem with it, you, you you state it very very clearly to the general, and and you know, Mark Clark can say, look, mate, you know, everyone's got a problem with going across a river. You know, shit happens and, and, and it's a tough fight, you know, but just give it a go. You know, the British have just done it across the Garigliano, which frankly is about eight times as wide as it is here. Um, get on with it. And, and you know, that to me sounds like a completely fair enough response. You know, I'm giving you this, I'm giving you this, I'm giving you this. You know, if you can't do it, you can't do it, but I'll get someone else who can. Yeah, well, and, and the interesting thing is, of course, after the war, in January 1946, the 36th Division Association is lobbying Congress for an investigation of that that whole debacle at the Rapido River, and really with an eye toward blaming Clark, who of course is still on active duty as a very important general. He's going to have a lot of really important commands after the war. Most notably, he succeeds Ridgeway, um, you know, as commander, yeah, of of uh, even beyond Korea, the whole theater. Because, you know, Ridgway had succeeded uh, MacArthur. MacArthur's fired. Uh, so, yeah, so Clark had a, had a lot of very important duties after the war, too. And he had a lot on the line, you know, if Congress was going to go forward with that kind of investigation. And he's the one singled out, not Walker, um, not even the Corps commander, who is what? Keyes, I think, at that point. I, I don't know. Second Corps commander is Jeffrey Keyes, isn't he? Or, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah it is Keyes. So yeah, they're yeah, not really blaming him. But again. Who actually isn't a very impressive character, I don't think. Yeah, but isn't that. Just as much about about career and what is going on there at, at this point, and it's best at that point uh, politically to say, well, Clark wasn't really any good anyway. <laughs> Clark, I mean, Cl- Clark said he was the only American commander to bring an army out of a war that they hadn't won, and he found that disappointing and up- upsetting in itself. So there's some can carrying. It's it, it's all part of what's going on per- post-war. I mean, what's going on at the Rapido. Uh, is incidental, really. I think you're absolutely right. I think that is the, the root of it all. I think it is, that's all all added into the mix. But the other way of looking at it again, again is, is it's a bit like Clark's appointment as Army Group Commander in Italy. You're not going to take over from two people, yeah. two other people, unless you're really good. <laughs> I mean, you know, if Clark was as bad as everyone says, why does he end up being commander in Korea? Jim, uh, i got to say, I think you've, you've done a, you, you did a brilliant job going to bat for Mark Clark. I mean, I can't wait. Um, for, I cannot wait for people to tweet me saying that Mark Clark was going to shoot Brits in Rome. Well, I have to say, oh, for God's sake, listen to the podcast uh, uh, politely in our replies. <laughs> he was going to shoot anyone British in Rome and he was going to present their scalp to Rennie for her birthday, whenever that was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he was a pretty complete general, actually. And I think the other thing, like, I think he's a, I think he, he's representative of a lot of Americans. The American army, generally, the, the, they learn incredibly quickly. Of course, he makes mistakes. But 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 the mistakes, I think the other thing is, I think the uh, one of the big mistakes that's, that's, that's hurled at him is his you know, he didn't want to have a big barrage before Salerno. I don't think that made any difference whatsoever, if I'm brutally honest. I, I think that's a total red herring um, because he certainly brings in the, in the guns very quickly afterwards. And, it, you know, the, the, the landings are successful. So I don't think that's really an issue, to be perfectly honest. You know, you can see that, that you know, in my, in my understanding of what a general should do, does he regularly communicate with his core commanders, his divisional commanders? Absolutely. Is he very visual at the front and go and visit lots of men? Yes. Does he make does he make bold and tough decisions? Absolutely he does. Does he stand by them? Yes. Does he hold his hand up when, when mistakes are made? Absolutely. You know, is he still there at the end of the war? Yes. Is his position elevated? Yes. Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. 
All power to Mark Clark. James Holland rings the bell. On the <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.